0: Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you would like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, The Music Room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame, a place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to The Music Room. This week in the music room. It
1: was a Catholic school and they had a, a mass and there was a guy who wasn't in my class, so I didn't know him. But he was playing acoustic guitar on stage and I just thought that was so cool. And it was <laughs> and it was Jed Grimes who went through wow. Danny Wilson with me and is now in
0: Simple Minds. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with composers, songwriters and musicians about their formative years and a little bit of what they're up to now. There's a growing collection of fascinating stories you can listen to, so if you like this episode, go back and listen to the other episodes. They're all standalone. It's not Coronation Street. Head to musicroompodcast.uk and the link is in the show notes for your ease. In this episode, you're going to hear from Gary Clark. Yes, the Gary Clark, songwriter, producer, musician, founding member of Danny Wilson, King L, and Transistor. Actually, we spend a bit of time talking about a movie that Gary soundtracked, 2016 Sing Street. If you haven't seen it or fancy a rewatch, hit the pause button and go and do that. Or listen to the soundtrack. Or both. Or just sit back and enjoy the chat. But first, music stories. Now, I'm going to shake up this section a little bit as the podcast and Music Room community develops and evolves. The Music Room community group on Facebook is such a lovely place to chat with other composers, songwriters, and musicians. And I have regular featured posts in there that are designed to spark memories. One is blankety-blank, which is as you would imagine, And the other is the big question. I'm a big fan of naming things as they are, it seems. Anyway, we'll still have music stories, but not in every episode, as I'll intersperse with some select big questions and blankety blanks. Not everything is suitable for public consumption. As you know, we have pros talking about their careers in a personal way, but some are just too funny not to share and some are fine to share. Come and join in, though. It's a lovely place to hang out. The link is in the show notes. That said, today we have a music story this one is from justine barker Justine is a lovely person and a fantastic composer with credits including casualty london kills and hope street let's hear how she got started in music at primary school i was top of the recorder group so was offered the chance to learn the flute I didn't get on with the instrument at all and had no inclination to practice. When I went to secondary school at around age 12, we had very general music lessons, but five students who showed the most flair were offered one-to-one instrument tuition at the grammar school next door. I started learning the cello and absolutely loved it. Ooh, fellow cellist. I happily walked to school carrying the cello uphill. I love that. My memories of carrying my cello up hills aren't so happy, Justine. In fact... This is an aside now, my dear old dad used to say, why couldn't you have learned something smaller like the piccolo? (laughs) Anyway, back to Justine. Our lessons were during the lunch break, but because the schools had different lunch breaks, my music lesson made me five minutes late for my science class. The science teacher kicked off. No one compromised and the lessons were stopped after a few months. We had no means to continue privately and that was the end of my musical education at school. My dad had taught me a few chords on guitar around age 7, and for years I just enjoyed playing guitar for fun, with no ambition, aspiration or belief that a career in music existed for me. Many years later, I met up with an old school pal. She said, I always thought you'd grow up and be in a band, and couldn't believe that I wasn't, and hadn't even pursued it. That was a bit of a light bulb moment. Even then, I didn't pursue music for a long time, but this is now a very long story, and I think I've answered your question. <laughs> Thank you, Justine. Lovely stuff. The link to your website is in the show notes and we'll go in the next Sound Boutique newsletter. Gary Clark, born in Dundee, Scotland, is a musician, songwriter and producer. As a performer, he's best known as the frontman of 80s pop band Danny Wilson and mid-90s rock band King L, as well as for being a member of Transistor. Since the mid-90s, he's concentrated on songwriting and production, working with the likes of Natalie Imbruglia, Demi Lovato and Mel C, and more recently has entered the world of soundtracks with 2016 movie Sing Street and 2019's TV series Modern Love. I really enjoyed chatting with the legend that is Gary Clark, and I hope you enjoy listening to his stories. And stick around to the end to find out what item and piece of advice Gary has left in the music room. Here we go. Gary Clark, songwriter and musician welcome to the music room
1: thank you thank you for having me it's nice to be here
0: Uh, it's a real thrill gary i could ask you about your time in danny wilson all day long but it's so well documented Mm. Uh, i'm going to put a link in the show notes for an interview you did in 2018 for classic scottish albums on bbc sounds there was a a thing you did for the album meet danny wilson Mm. uh, which is really interesting and i urge listeners to, to go and listen to that but I would like to touch on two post-Danny Wilson things before we go back in time. The first is the band King L, and for listeners, it's the word King and the letter L. Yeah. Not being rude. The band you formed with, Eric, Neil, and Matt. It was a heavier sound, wasn't it? Was that a conscious choice, or did that happen organically? The album I did before
1: was my first solo album. It's called 10 Shot Songs About Love, and... Mm. To do that album, it's the album that really got me deeply into home recording. And I, I put a studio in my flat in London and stuff. And so it was very techy and it was very overdubby. And it was very much a kind of labor of love in the recording sense. And when I did that and it didn't do very well either. So the instinct that I had was just to go in the exact opposite direction. <laughs> And that was really just to be in a room where you could record people live. And in the process of writing songs for that solo album, and also I'd started by that time, I'd started writing with and for other artists, but in that process, I was on a trip to LA and my pro- publisher introduced me to Eric Presley, who was a great songwriter, bass player, and we just kind of hit it off. We were turned out we were born in the same month in 1962 and we had all the same records in our record collection and it was one of those and uh, eric's sadly no longer with us actually but he um he and i really hit it off and i asked him to come to london i think to i think it was just a songwriting trip really at first and that kind of grew into this idea of you know what about a band and he brought matt in and i brought neil mccall in and it was just we just needed all of us at that time just needed some fun just be live in a studio
0: there's something in the i mean there's no right or wrong with music is there i mean you can't say or you you can't do things in the box you can't just play live but there is something magic about the community of playing live isn't there and being Mm -hmm. in the same room and feeling the music together Mm -hmm. Uh, i think there's something special about that well
1: actually I, i just there's a An Amazon TV series that I'm executive music producer on. That's John Carney, who also did Sing Street. But he invited me to look after the music for this series called Modern Love. And I just wrote the liner notes for the, um, the the vinyl that was just released. And I was talking about exactly that because I had to do the whole season two through lockdowns and everything was done over zoom. Um, even recording sessions, uh, vocal sessions, everything was done across zoom. Never met a human being in like the year of wow. making the show. And then at the very end, the l- restrictions had lifted enough for us to, to do some string sessions for some of the score that I'd written. And we went into a studio in Glasgow and when the players started playing, I uh, honestly <laughs> just nearly <laughs> burst into tears, you know, it was oh, just, my word, it was incredible. It's oh, just human fantastic.
0: beings in a room. you know? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. The, there were restrictions in the orchestral studios, weren't there about the, the, the chairs being so, yeah. so they had to get one set of players in and then do the same thing with another set of players and then layer them up in the recordings. And yeah. I mean, it meant it was done, but yeah, nothing like being in the same room. Yeah, exactly. Um, Magical. yeah. So, I mean, fast forward to the two thousands, you suddenly have a long-term collaboration with Natalie and Bruglia move to LA where your writing career seems to flourish and the list of artists you've worked with and written for is really extensive I guess my question is do you feel that your songwriting facilitates your performing or do you find that songwriting is perhaps always has been the center of your creative universe yeah
1: it's interesting I was never very comfortable as an artist, but I loved making records. Records was my obsession. As a kid, I grew up really much more because I was. I grew up in Dundee, Scotland, just where I am now. But you didn't see too many big acts come through town, and so mm-hmm. live wasn't as big a deal for me as when I went home and put my headphones on my stereo and it was being able to listen to Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder and these incredible yeah. American-produced records and. That was the that was the um obsession and the inspiration for me. So being an artist was and, and also if you think about my heroes, people like Tom Waits, I mentioned Steely Dan, these people weren't stars as such. They could walk down the street, you know. It was all about the music that they made in the recording studio. And I guess that's just the culture that I sort of grew up in. And so it was an easy transition for me into i don't say easy it's never easy but you know like the Mm. the thought process from being an artist into writing and recording songs with and for other artists wasn't as difficult a leap for me i don't think yeah
0: yeah absolutely some people really relish the performance Mm. aspect of it don't they it's amazing but I,
1: i remember being on tour and realizing that i I found it really hard to write on the road there's just too many distractions and no quiet time and um i remember being on a a tour through europe and just dying to get back into the studio again and realizing that like on this bus i
0: felt like i was trapped that i couldn't create anything you know So that's really your happy place being in the studio and and experimenting and being creative yeah definitely that's fantastic Right, Gary, something I've been excited to ask you about, <laughs> you might guess what it is, uh, the soundtrack album to the 2016 movie Sing Street. It has to be one of my all time favorites. Oh, thank uh, you. The other day I figured out why I think it appeals to any kid who's taught themselves to play the guitar in their bedroom. Any kid who's had aspirations of being in a band, recording their own songs. Certainly that kid was me and uh, me clearly it was yeah clearly it was you two. and john
1: carney who's the uh, ah, writer and that's fantastic director but
0: how, how did it all come about what was it like to have these songs brought to life on screen
1: well sing street has changed my life it was an incredible gift um i had just moved back to scotland from la and i was trying to figure out what i was doing next a lot of what i was doing didn't involve me as much being in one place anymore and the technology had meant We were able to communicate over longer distances and stuff and make music over longer distances. But I was working a lot in Sweden, a lot in Australia, and I was living in LA and spending daft money on rent. And my wife, Alison, suggested that we think about moving back to the UK. And I kind of got here with a bit of fear. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And and we did a bit of work on the house. I'd never taken any time off for years. And I, I took a little bit of time out. And basically at the end of it, the phone rang and it was John Carney. And I'd never met him before. He just liked my early Danny Wilson records that I'd made in the eighties with my band. And he said, I'm making this movie about a kid growing up in Dublin in, in the eighties. He told me the story and I was like, that's practically my life story, you know? Um, and it was kind of practically his life story. And he'd written a few, he'd started a few ideas, like four or five songs. He sent me the demos. And and they sent me a script and some brief outlines of songs that he needed. I remember Drive It Like He Stole It was just said something like it's an uplifting American prom scene. Really. I actually wrote a, the first song I sent him was for a scene that got cut and it was called Dream for You and
0: Does that it, exist anywhere?
1: It's actually going into the stage show, which is oh, really well, okay. interesting because Sig Street's now gonna be a Broadway show. And so I've managed to get it back again, but I sent him that song and see his original thing to me when the original phone conversation is that he was going to get a bunch of people who'd made records in the eighties to do different songs because they were, they were kind of in different styles. You know, that was as the band progresses in the movie, they get into the cure and they get into all yeah, different stuff, So funny, all the notes and you know, <laughs>
0: um, the sick cut scenes when they're walking into school. Oh, it's so, brilliant. That's so funny. Exactly. I
1: can't take any credit for Joan's stuff. He's
0: hilarious. <laughs>
1: um, and the, the, yeah. So the initial idea was to have a lot of different writers on it. But when I sent him the song dream for you, um, he basically called me back and said, do you want to just come on and do the whole movie? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, <laughs> I think I'm the only mo- person that's moved from Los Angeles to Dundee to get into pictures, you know? Amazing. And, Amazing. Um, and it triggered a whole load of new stuff. Me and John doing more stuff together, TV. And through that, a producer from of the film Nanny McPhee called me because she heard Sing Street and asked me to work on that with Emma Thompson as at the stage show. So it just opened a whole new world to me that I had never, I wouldn't have known how to get into it, even though I wanted to as a kid, I, If you'd have asked me, I'd have said I wanted to write musical theater and I wanted to write music for films, I would have said that, but I just didn't know how to get into it.
0: It's amazing really, isn't it? Because there is the danger of getting pigeonholed in a certain area. You know, even within soundtrack world, you've got uh, writing for kids, writing for drama, writing for documentaries. So you seem to have gone from being in a band to walking through that door and suddenly you're somewhere else and walking through that door and Suddenly you find yourself writing for theater and mm. writing for TV. And that's, that's quite something. It's quite a rare thing.
1: And I feel very blessed actually. And it, I suppose the one thing I would say is that the, my experience of writing with lots of different artists kind of taught me to be very flexible and also to be able to get into someone else's psyche, someone else's head, which is what you do with a, mm. a song for a character or for a scene or,
0: you know. And certainly you did that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with Sing Street, you know, those songs and those characters seem to exist in tandem, don't they? Well, you
1: know, some of that's, you, you've got to give John Carney a lot of credit for that as well. He's really musical and, uh, very, uh, he, the interesting thing about John is he'll sometimes give you a brief and then I'll get it wrong, but it will help him see. What it is that's missing and it helps him put the pieces together because he fundamentally understands these characters these kids of whatever it is in this in the stories really deeply you know and just sometimes by me saying what about a song like this and he'll he'll go well that's a brilliant song but actually it tells me that she needs to sing something much simpler or like a nursery rhyme, or whatever it is you know like i'm making that up but sometimes getting it wrong points you in the right
0: direction absolutely you hear that composers notes are good <laughs> <laughs> people can be a bit precious sometimes can't they but oh, yeah God. you know you're working towards the same goal so of course any kind of communication is good when you're working on productions definitely absolutely wonderful um if you're ready shall we go back in time yeah gary can you remember the first time that you were even aware of music
1: yes but it's a kind of like um a collage in my brain in yeah. the sense that there was a lot of music in my house growing up. My dad loved big band jazz and the kind of classic um Kroonor Sinatra, um, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of big band swing jazz. And then my mum was quite different. She was in a kind of soft rock pop of the day. So that included anything from the carpenters, Barbara and the uh, the Beach Boys—like we had pet sounds in the house—and that was in the house being played on the radio and on records. I can remember kind of hearing the pop songs as a kid of the day. I can remember O oh, Blah Di, O oh, Da." The Beatles on the radio, standing in the kitchen. and uh, wow. Doesn't you know there's little flickers of memory that you get? Yeah. I could still remember that. Um, but then my family was a kind of Irish Catholic family, and when everybody got together for birthday parties or Christmas or whatever it was that it would inevitably become a sing song. And people would sing everything from old Irish folk songs to pop songs of the day. And if you couldn't sing, you would tell a funny story or read a poem or whatever. Um, but the, the powerful thing memory for me, cause I was just an, I would be just an infant and I would get up and sing as well, you know, but the, the powerful thing for me was. All of these songs had to stand up as songs with no accompaniment or with, sometimes with accompaniment. Occasionally, someone would have an accordion or something. But they were all really powerful story songs that you could tell. People, they had the party songs because they worked in that, in that environment, you know. So um, people could stand up and start singing and bring people to tears or make people laugh or make people dance or whatever, you know. And I think mm. that had a huge effect on me.
0: You, you've always struck me as someone who, if you can't sit down with a song and play it on a guitar or play it on a piano, mm. and it still be, you know, as powerful, it's not necessarily going to work. I mean, you can go in a studio and throw the kitchen sink at, at things. I think when I worked in pop music, in particularly in LA,
1: there's definitely a kind of music that is more track based, mm. and I was always trying to still keep it feeling like a song um mm. but i have yeah. worked in areas that it, that wouldn't work so much but it is definitely what i believe in and also what i come back to
0: you know it was funny uh just as an aside uh, uh we're watching the i don't know if you've been watching the eurovision um I semi-finals it, no. there was a point i actually exclaimed the other night oh a chorus because <laughs> <laughs> right. it's funny and it, i don't know how they write these songs but um, yeah, suddenly there was, oh, right, right. I recognize that as a song, not yeah. just as a kind of rambling.
1: <laughs> well, that's interesting as well, because songs melodically have changed in the last 10 or 15 years or sorry, structuredly. Uh, in that the thing that's happened with the ability to make really impressive tracks and beats mm. and stuff is that the songwriting process. I mean, I'll just briefly go into it, but there tends to be a group of people who are what they call track guys and a group of people who are what they call top-liners. This is in pop music. Yeah. Yeah. And the the track guys very often will have a bunch of ideas for tracks before the top-liners come in and then the top-liners, it's their job to write melody and lyric. And I I did both, so I didn't fall into that. I could move between those categories or do the whole thing, but that that is the way a lot of it is done. And what you get from that is that the top liners are really just coming up with a series of, I'm not saying that this is harder or easier or worse or better or anything, but it's a series of hooks until you get bored of that hook. So, you know, like the tracks there, it's usually just the same four chords beating over and over again. And the top liners will come up with a hook and everyone's, oh, that's cool, that's cool, let's do that. So they'll repeat that and then it's like, no, I'm bored. Right, do someone else, you know? <laughs> And if you listen to a lot of modern pop records, sometimes they don't even repeat the bit that they didn't, they're not structurally what yeah. we would traditionally call a song structure, a verse, chorus, or that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where were we? I don't know, <laughs> wandered off. She'd never interview me. I'm just,
0: <laughs>
1: I'm uncontrollable.
0: It was my fault. It was my fault. <laughs> I mentioned Eurovision. Um, so growing up in your house, uh, we we were talking about the, the structure of songs and and uh, performing songs. It had to be a powerful song, regardless, when you were growing up. So did you have any music lessons uh, when growing up? Not really formally. Um, I tried to
1: learn guitar, but I was too impatient. I, I got a guitar when I think I was 11, and I went to a local guitar teacher. But it was, you know, Frere Jacques picking it out, like reading the notes. and. I was just like, I just want to play, you know, whatever the latest David Bowie tune was that was on there. <laughs> so I regret that now because i I mean, although I guess the teacher didn't inspire me very much, but that's one thing I wish I'd had a formal training, particularly when I work a lot in TV and film and stuff now. But, but there was a teacher at school who was actually a science teacher. He was a chemistry teacher called Paul Fitzpatrick. And he used to take his lunch times and teach kids who were interested Rock guitar, you know, pentatonic scales, and he'd play records, and he was the first person to play me Steely Dan, and teach you licks and scales Fantastic. and stuff, and so he really opened up the guitar for me, and that was really helpful and really powerful. You know, also took, as I say, he would turn me on to records that I'd never heard before.
0: So did that lead you? directly to forming a band or writing songs? Yeah,
1: or we had a school band when I was probably, I mean, it's Sing Street,
0: basically. I was going to say. I fourteen. Yeah. And about uh, How do the songs compare? Were you writing original things or were you doing covers? Actually, I was quite early on, yeah. I, no. I, I, I had
1: this sense, I actually knew from very, very young that music was what I wanted to do. And not unlike in Sing Street, <laughs> although it's the brother who says it in Sing Street, his big brother says it, Mm -hmm. I kind of quite quickly came to the conclusion that all the people that I loved were writing their own songs, you know? So I knew that I had to learn to write songs. And so just me with a guitar trying to figure it out. I mean, it's so sings through, it's ridiculous. It is,
0: it is. You just cracked on. (laughs) So basically your chemistry teacher is your kind of uh, pivotal moment for learning an instrument. Yes. I mean, well, Mm -hmm. I could already play and I could, I'd,
1: I'd learn by ear songs from the the radio and stuff, but Mm. he helped me to, I don't know, just expand that and structurally understand Mm. things like scales and stuff.
0: So you got your school band, what happens there? I mean, how long are you in a school band? Is it to which, you know, is it to the end of school? Well, from the very first
1: school band, there was a guy who I saw, it was a Catholic school and they had a, a mass and there was a guy who wasn't in my class. So I didn't know him but he was playing acoustic guitar on stage and I just thought that was so cool. And it was, <laughs> and it was Jed Grimes who went through Wild. Danny Wilson with me and is now in Simple Minds. And he was kind of right through the school bands to move into London, to get in a record deal, all of that. He and I were worked together all the way through all that. And he's uh, still a monster, amazing
0: musician. That's lovely that you still have that respect for each other all this time.
1: Yeah, everybody who works Amazing. with Jed has respect for him. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's just solid as a rock. He's just one of these, you know, and, and actually I think he had a huge wandering off again, but like when he joined Simple Minds, which is now about 15 years ago, he had a huge influence on kind of the trajectory of that band, like the playing right. big stadiums again and touring and doing all that stuff because of his energy, you know?
0: Yeah. It's a real resurgence, isn't it? mm mm-hmm. So do you feel like you had hurdles, barriers to, to get through so far? We've heard about you're in a school band, then you moving to London and getting started there, what happens in between? How do you make that leap? So that is
1: the biggest hurdle is, you know, physical location, geographical location, and also in Scotland at that time, when I left the music scene was good locally, but it was not incredibly international although the associates were starting to make waves and that's just a little bit later but my parents were of a generation where it was really important for them that we get an education because uh, they'd went straight to work from school into my dad was a plumber so there was a lot of pressure to go to university or whatever and my brother went to Aberdeen University and then dropped out I went to Dundee art college, um, because I was, art was another thing that I was good at in English, but I, I went to Dundee art college and I did the first year general course. And then I, I started doing graphic design, but every single fiber of my being was screaming, you're in the wrong direction. You need to be doing music. You know, I was 19, it was the summer holidays. And I had a friend who was at Oxford university and he said, come and stay with me on my floor. So. I went down and just ended up, my band followed me and lived in a squat, did all that stuff um, for about three years. It's funny, we were poor as anything, but I don't really, really remember any of that. I just remember like having so much creative fun and Mm. getting to play on stages where the bands that were playing around at the time were like
0: the alarm and things, you know. Wow. Opening so it, it like was that. really your apprenticeship, wasn't it? It was really your education, your Hamburg, if you will. It definitely, <laughs> exactly.
1: That's, that's spot on. And yeah. and actually, at the end of that three years, the three that we'd, we'd kind of boiled down to a three-piece, keyboard player had left, blah, blah, blah. And the two other guys had had enough and they wanted to move back to Scotland and I was going to be left on my own, and I was just thinking, I don't like, well, I'll go, I'll go in the transit van that they'd rented back to Scotland, and I'll sort of regather. And I went back to Scotland and stayed with my mum for a while, which was difficult when you've had freedom, you know. Mm. But it was what we learned in London. We were able to put into practice in this sort of new world. In and what had happened in Scotland is suddenly a light had sort of shone on these bands. There was Deacon Blue, Hue and Cry, The Associates, Orange Juice had happened. There was a lot of stuff happening in Scotland. And then there was a club in Dundee called Fat Sam's. And Fat Sam's would have all the touring bands of a certain level, the up-and-coming bands, would play there every Sunday. Was Sunday was a big night. So you saw Prefab Sprout and Bronski Beat and stuff all really early on. And we'd open for a lot of these bands as well, because we were a local band. And so the A&R people would come up and, and then music journalists. And it just, there was a bit of a thing started to happen. Jed and I were still making music together. The drummer left, he later ended up in Delamitre, which is another story. But, um, we just gathered a team. And that's when I asked my younger brother, Kit, to join. And he was five years younger than me, but when I'd been away, he'd st- started playing in bands and was writing songs, and all sorts of stuff. So that was the core of Danny Wilson, right at that point, pivotal moment when we when I moved back to Scotland with Jed, and we we were a much better band than most of the local bands live because of the experience that we'd had in London, and we got a review in NME for journalists. Um, reviewed our live show and it was a glowing review. And then suddenly we had all the, the labels wanted to sign us. And after that was pretty much the
0: yeah, classic, the we, we had all the yeah. stuff. I mean,
1: Mary's prayer was written and all the, pretty
0: much all the first album was written at that point. You know, Fabulous. Right. I am asking each guest to leave an item that helped them become who they are today and a piece of advice for anyone wanting to get into the music industry. So what item would you like to leave in the music wing? This is a, I had to think about this, but when I first
1: moved to London, and I remember buying a book on, uh, in foils on Cross Road. Mm. And it was, I was looking for a rhyming dictionary and I bought this book, hardcover book, which I still have by Jean Lees. I think it's called the modern rhyming dictionary, but it has a longer title. And it's a rhyming dictionary, but it's also, um, he comes from the old school, the kind of co Porter world of perfect, perfect rhyming. He's scathing about modern pop music and it's so old fashioned, it's terrible. However, yeah. it is the absolute Bible on understanding rhyme. And if you take the time to read it and take the time to understand it and then apply it to the modern world, you'll have an amazing grounding in that particularly tricky area of rhyming, you know, yeah. and um, I still realize every day that it's there in the back of my mind, even though the lyrics are much freer now in the rhyming scan, but the, the grounding is really
0: important, so
1: yeah. that's your little bit of classical training
0: there. Yeah, no, that's uh, brilliant. It's uh, like a go-to tool that you have in your songwriting toolkit. Mm. What advice would you like to give then? I don't feel so
1: qualified in terms of like for people who are starting out in the sense that the music business has changed so, so dramatically, it's very different from when I was, but the bit of advice that struck me was more about finishing songs when you're in that pool of doubt. When I was starting the second Danny Wilson album, starting to write Bebop Mop Top is the name of that album. Nothing was good enough for me and I was sitting at the piano and the guitar for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and just wouldn't finish anything. And I had all these bits, but I, I just, it was frustrating me that they weren't good enough. And my A&R representative at Virgin Records, Ronnie Gar, just said to me, you just have to finish something. And he said, it, you don't even have to play it to us if you don't like it, but you just have to finish something. And I thought you know he's right and so I, I just finished one of these ideas which it's yes, okay and then it led me to finish another idea and another idea and I, I will say that I now no longer get writer's block I I just don't get it because wow it's it's to do with the application of just finishing yeah so that's my advice just finish it
0: <laughs> I'll take that on myself yeah <laughs> I mean, with soundtrack work, I, I, that's fine, like yourself. Just no writer's block there. But with songs, it's different. I've, I find sometimes I have to just leave it alone and come back because it's
1: yeah. You know,
0: I'm not saying you can't walk away every now and again. It depends on your if there's a deadline or
1: if there's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, for um, sure. But there is a way through. That's an interesting thing That kind of raises a slightly different thing, which is, I do think there is a craft of songwriting that you can learn to look at the song and go, what is the pivotal point of this song? Mm. And everything should support that pivotal point in that song, whether it's a musical or lyrical or both kind of, yeah. um, point and that helps as well. Just structure, you know? Yeah.
0: Gary Clark, it has been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. And you. Thank you for joining me in the music room. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you